Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm back with Jim Crooks to continue our discussion about personal identity. We're in the middle of a conversation trying to answer the question, who am I? And how should I understand myself? Welcome back, Jim. Thank you, Ollie. The last episode required us to delve into some philosophy, so I'm in dire need of a coffee to help me recover. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground in the last episode. And let's dive straight back into the discussion we were having. You you structured the concept of identity using the analogy of a traditional cake. I thought it was a, a brilliant analogy. Just remind us quickly of that analogy. Well, speaking as one of Ireland's foremost chefs, um, I, I, just very quickly, I, I, I described that all cakes contain eggs, fat, sugar, and flour. Those are the generic ingredients. Um, all cakes have them. But then coffee cakes have coffee, chocolate cakes have cocoa powder, and so on. We'll call those the specific ingredients. And once you've mixed them all together in a big bowl, you then need to cook them. And it's the cooking process which transforms the raw ingredients into a splendid cake. Brilliant. And the point of that analogy is that all human beings have the same basic ingredients. And in the last episode, you talked about purpose, freedom, and value. That's right. I argued that in our search for identity, the best place to start is not with the question, who am I? The first question is, what am I? And if Christianity is true, then each of us is a being endowed with objective purpose, creaturely freedom, and intrinsic worth. So those are the generic elements of human identity. But what are the specific ones? Well, I'm a 56-year-old male, Raised in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, I feel both British and Irish. I was raised in a stable, loving home that made me feel secure. I have four older siblings. I was encouraged to learn. I have some genetic traits that I share with one of my grandmothers. Now, the point of that little potted history is to identify the specific elements that um, forge our self-understanding. I'll suggest four for now. My upbringing, my gender, my ethnicity, and my personality traits. I was enjoying that. I thought we were going to get a little bit of your backstory there. That's the closest you'll ever get to an autobiography. (laughs) So how does my upbringing affect my identity? There's a lady called Mary Eberstadt, and she's an American author and cultural commentator. And in August of this year, she published a book called Primal Screams. And it's about the rise of identity politics in the Western world. And I'm going to give you a quick quote from her book. Today's clamour over identity... The authentic scream by so many for answers to questions about where they belong in the world do not spring from nowhere. It is a squalling creature, unique to our time, born of familial liquidation. Now, that is pretty dramatic language. She describes the crisis over identity as a primal existential scream. Something has gone terribly wrong with the human condition so that we're no longer moored to a firm sense of self. And her big idea? is that the crisis has been caused by the collapse of the family structure. So Eberstadt talks about uh, what she calls a great scattering. And she uses that term to describe the way traditional family structures have dissolved. So in my little potted autobiography, I made the point that I was embedded in a stable family. That upbringing built a sort of givenness into my identity. I'm I'm actually sounding like a postmodernist here. It was my upbringing, more than anything else, that gave me a strong sense of self. Now, society today is very different. Absent fathers, the fracturing of identity caused by parental divorce, shrinking families, all these trends have weakened the sense of a given identity in your generation. 
I mean, Ollie, you're far too young to remember pop artists like Kurt Cobain or Pink or Eminem. But the lyrics of their songs were all about family rupture and the anarchy that that brings. Yeah, to be honest, I thought Kurt Cobain was a wrestler, but maybe I'm getting something <laughs> wrong there. Um, has the change in family structures altered how my generation thinks about identity? Undoubtedly. If Eberstadt is right, then that sense of givenness that a stable nuclear family builds into children has been lost. And so it isn't surprising that your generation has gone searching for identity in the ideologies of the progressive left. The second specific ingredient you mentioned was gender. The idea that gender is a specific element of our makeup is very controversial today. So what about the transgender ideology that sees gender identity simply as a social construct? Christianity has a very high view of the body. There's no division between body and person. They form an integrated psychophysical unity. And they will do so for all eternity. Christianity is unique in its claim that our bodies will be resurrected and that one day we will be given transformed, glorified bodies that can operate in the mode of reality we call the new heavens and earth. In the previous episode, I quoted a French historian's view of Darwinism. He said that Darwinism's central idea is the denial of purpose. So do a little experiment for me now, Ollie. Glance down and inspect your hands and fingers. Think what Darwinism means for your own body. It no longer has a design plan. It's no longer a reservoir of moral truths revealed to us by God's good creation. It's just a wet machine churning along, powered by blind material forces. And here's the implication for personal identity. If my body isn't an intrinsic part of me as a creature, if it's not the result of God's will, then I can impose my own will upon it because it's just a piece of biology. You may have heard of Jessica Savano. Um, Jessica Savano is a six-foot-four-inch male-to-female transsexual who starred in a TV documentary called I Am Not My Body. I am not my body, Savano said. I am a spiritual being. Why are you even looking at my body anyway? I am a woman. Now that quote is very revealing. Savano claims an identity as a woman even while talking about a male body. And the implication, of course, is that the body doesn't matter. But our bodies do matter. The Bible presents human beings as integrated persons, body, soul, and spirit. Separating them is a return to that old philosophical enemy of Christianity, the thing called Gnosticism. Am I still supposed to be looking at my hands, Shemmel? <laughs> no, you can stop now. <laughs> no, I think that's really, in all seriousness, that is incredibly helpful. Um, and a point that I think is important to raise at this point is that gender dysphoria is a real thing. For some people. So how, how would you respond to that? Of course it is. Gender dysphoria is a reality in a, in a fallen world. But the kindest and wisest response is not to deny biological realities. Instead, the mind can be encouraged to conform to the body so that integrated personhood can be re-established. Transgenderism is just one example of a sexualized identity. What would you say to a young adult who's grappling with our culture's view of sexualized identities? Some people experience same-sex attraction. That is a simple fact which should attract neither praise nor blame. Their feelings are real, and they often run very deep. They aren't chosen. But those feelings need not define who you are. Some people experience gender dysphoria. But those feelings need not define who you are. The move from feelings to identity is a false move. It's an assumption made by people who have the 3D printer model of human identity. That's the stuff we talked about in the previous episode. So what would you say then to a young adult who 
perhaps experiences same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. I would say that you are loved by God. You didn't choose the feelings you have, but those feelings need not define who you are. It's entirely understandable that in a world that has cut you adrift from any sense of a given identity, that people go searching inside themselves for something they can use to forge their identity. But feelings are a wretched foundation on which to build an identity, because feelings are fickle and fragile things. If you let God speak your identity to you, then you can know yourself as a creature made in his image. You can know yourself as a child of God and a member of the body of Christ. The third specific ingredient you mentioned was ethnicity. How does that affect identity? The Bible has an entirely positive view of ethnic diversity. God created it in Genesis, and he values it so much that ethnic diversity will be part of the glory of the Christian church for all eternity. Just think about that great scene in Revelation chapter 5, when people from all nations and people groups and languages gather together around the throne of God. There's no doubt that ethnicity is a vital component in our identity. But it's become a battleground in our society. I don't need to remind anyone of the horrific exploitation of black people during the years when slavery was socially acceptable. But the conversation about those real and terrible injustices have got tangled up in the ideologies of the progressive left. So post-colonialism has allied itself with the story told by feminism and the LGBT movement. And as a result, it's very hard for Christian people of colour to disentangle the biblical commentary on ethnicity and social justice from the politics of identity. Now, Ollie, the question is so complicated that we're not really going to be able to answer it in this podcast, or we'll be here for a very long time. We may need a specific conversation about race in a later episode. We are blessed here in Crescent Church with a, a large number of international students, and I have spent quite a long time listening to their views on race. Darwinism must bear a lot of responsibility for the biological racism that led to the rise of ethnic nationalism in places like Nazi Germany. But the contemporary debate is over cultural racism. And the problem here is that post-colonialism has made it really difficult to disentangle the real justice issues from the overall ideology of the progressive left. So if you don't mind, let's leave ethnicity for now. It's just too complicated to summarise. All we need to say here is that God values it, he created it in the first place, and we see from Revelation 5 that he wants to keep it forever. In this fallen world, there is ethnic injustice. When we get to the end of this conversation, I hope we're going to see that ethnic injustice in this life can be handled in a way that develops a truly Christian identity. That's definitely something we'll come back to in a later episode. The last of your specific ingredients was the thing you called personality traits. What do you mean by that? In this fallen world, all of us have fault lines running through our personalities. Some people seem to have a naturally healthy mental life, for example. Others of us struggle with anxiety or OCD or depression. We seem to have big fracture points in our personalities. And we're all dealt different hands when it comes to genetics. Some young adults struggle with congenital defects or chemical imbalances in the brain. So I'm including all of that in what we might call a personality trait. Now, the obvious place to start here is to ask, why do some people get dealt a poor hand and others don't? People who are struggling with something like depression must feel that life is unfair. If, if humans were the, the cast of Winnie the Pooh, why do you get to be Eeyore while everybody else bounces around like Tigger? It's a big issue for Christians in particular. Why has God made me like this? How is it fair that I have these struggles and others do not? 
It's not as if you've been ruining your body with drugs and alcohol. It's just a predisposition. So why are some people predisposed to experience depression and others are not? Well, let me give you a a, a silly illustration. Well, all my illustrations are silly. About a week ago, I I got a lift in a brand new BMW 7 Series. um, And it felt as if I was in the first class cabin of an Airbus 380. You know, it was a magnificent machine equipped with every safety device known to man. It didn't just have airbags and anti-locking brakes and run-flat tyres. It had something called adaptive cruise control and uh, lots of buttons. The suspension was so beautifully engineered that even potholes in the road felt like a, a Rolls Royce going over a Jaffa cake, to quote Jeremy Clarkson. And that's the last time I will ever quote Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> we can maybe get him on the podcast. <laughs> that would be epic. <laughs> or not, as the case may be. Um, yes. um, get him to talk about global warming, perhaps. <laughs> I couldn't help, um, anyway, contrast this lovely machine with my first car, which was this ancient, battered Ford Fiesta. I mean, the few bits of metal that hadn't rusted were a, a fetching beige colour. The thing was a death trap. I had only rarely travelled in a straight line. Uh, the windscreen wipers worked uh, every other Tuesday. In order to get the car to stop, I had to stand on the brakes and scream. I don't think it had a suspension system. And anyway, I remember one, one freezing winter's night, um, I had a puncture, uh, and I was parked on the hard shoulder of the M2. Uh, And I was trying to jack the car up while this uh, blizzard of sleet blew into my right ear. And all the while, these big fancy cars were sailing past me, their occupants warm and safe from the elements outside. I'm sure there are times when all of us must have felt like that. You look at other people who seem to sail through life. Nothing ever bothers them. They make this business of living seem effortless. Their mental state is so secure, they seem to be insulated from the events that come into all our lives. And meanwhile, you're broken down on the hard shoulder of life. You're left feeling cold and alone. Now, there's a point to this laboured metaphor. You see, I am a much better driver today because I was forced to drive that battered old Fiesta. Because it didn't have great steering or brakes or suspension. I developed a whole set of skills that I would never have developed if I had been handed the keys of a new BMW on my 18th birthday. Now, if Christianity is true, then the problems in our bodies and minds are only temporary. One day we will all have glorified bodies. In fact, the only thing we will take into the next life will be our characters. And character is formed in the struggles we endure in this life. So my point is this. Maybe God has allowed you to struggle in ways others don't because he is developing capacities and capabilities that will have eternal value. The Apostle Paul has that thought when he dares to talk of our light and momentary troubles which are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That analogy leads us into the last part of your cake analogy. Identity isn't just about the generic ingredients of a human being, and it isn't just about the specific ingredients like upbringing, gender, ethnicity, and genetic predispositions. You talked about how the cake gets baked in the oven of life, and I'd like to explore this a little further. What has this idea of being cooked got to do with our search? For identity. The point I'm going to make here is really only for Christians. All humans are creatures made in God's image. But if I am a Christian, then I can also know myself as a child of God and a member of the body of Christ. We have this new identity in Christ. But the old preachers in my childhood used to have a favorite saying that confused me. They kept saying, become what you are. Become what you are. Hmm. Yeah, that is a little unusual. Could you explain that further? Well, in some ways, The Christian's identity can be seen as a big flag planted in the ground on the horizon. It's secure, it can't be lost, but we have to travel towards it. God takes us on a journey, 
developing us into sons and daughters of the Most High, so we become what we are. And it is that journey which I described as the cooking process. Now, I imagine that being in an oven isn't a particularly pleasant experience. Lots of heat and pressure. But it takes that heat and pressure to transform the raw ingredients into a beautiful and unique cake. And this is the amazing idea in Christian thought. God can use every part of us, even our genetic defects, our dysfunctional family backgrounds, the social injustices we must endure, our deprivations. He uses these things to forge capabilities and capacities that will shine for all eternity. In the end, we shall all be like Christ, but we will be like him in unique ways. It can still be hard, though, when we compare the path we have to walk with the path others are given. That is very true, Ollie. Maybe somebody is listening to us now and their identity was fractured when their parents split up. Or perhaps they struggle with the void of loneliness that can come with gender dysphoria. Maybe a young woman of colour has just got wearied by the cultural racism that she endures day after day. Or someone is trapped inside the dark cave called depression. And the whole thing makes very little sense. And the truth is, if death is the end, then it makes no sense whatsoever. I was talking to a student just last night on this very point. The search for identity is a vain quest. It's an exercise in futility unless we view its trajectory as stretching into eternity. The wonderful thing is that God uses our deprivations, the unique struggles we all have, to build something uniquely beautiful and valuable for eternity. God's putting you through the oven of life. He's transforming you into a son or a daughter of God. But there will be no one like you in heaven. You will be his unique daughter or son. So become what you are. Therein lies your purpose, your freedom, and your worth. So you can leave the stress and loneliness of self-creation behind. Who needs a personal brand when you're called to be a son or a daughter of God? And one final point. In his grace, God has given us a wonderful gift so that we don't have to travel alone. It's the thing called the church. And how does the church help us build this healthy sense of identity? The early verses of Romans 12 have a lot to say about identity. And Paul's unique insight in those verses is that our personal identity develops within the context of a Christian community. It is relational, if you like. He says that each of us should see ourselves as an organ within a body. A human body is a functional whole, but it's made up of many different parts. And those parts belong to each other. Now, that's a helpful analogy. So, imagine that my pancreas decided to go on a journey of self-discovery. That sounds like an idea for a new Disney movie, potentially. (laughs) It's a little dark for Disney. (laughs) Uh, My pancreas would not fare well, because on its own, it's an odd-looking thing. And I could never hope to find self-understanding on its own, because by definition, it would have no purpose. The pancreas needs a body just as much as the body needs a pancreas. Now, think how amazingly practical that solution is. The best way to develop a sound self-regard, a healthy personal identity, is to serve in a local church. It's in the prosaic business of serving and Bible teaching, encouraging others, being generous, leading, or being merciful, that our self-understanding becomes balanced and healthy. God gives us the gifts we need to serve, but our lives start to make sense when we see members working together. Once my pancreas returns to its God's-given role, gets connected back up to the duodenium, then it will have the satisfaction of knowing that its output is helping to regulate my entire body. On its own, my pancreas makes no sense it would rightly question why it matters. But when it finds its rightful place as a member of a body, then its identity becomes clear. So my practical advice is, join a local church and commit to it. Don't be a consumer, but work hard and put in the tough effort to make genuine friendships. 
and get off social media. Never regard these platforms as an extension of your identity. Build genuine friendships in the real world and use social media to watch videos of 3D printed boats. <laughs> You're not allowed to say that, Jim, because we use Instagram to promote this podcast. So if people got off social media, we'd be in a bit of, we'd be in a bit of bother. <laughs> I know. Uh, I was speaking at a CU on Monday night and they asked me, what item would I like to go into room 101? And I suggested Instagram. I'm sure that went down well. Like a lead balloon. I had to change my mind in the end. I went with vegan cheese. That's outstanding. How about some vegan cheese for episode seven? Well, episode seven is clearly going to be about the existence of objective evil. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Um, And thanks for listening to episode six of the Equip Project podcast. It's been great to have your company. And we hope you can join us again in episode seven. If you would like to suggest a topic or a question we can talk about together, please do email us at theequipproject at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, do share it with your friends and family or post a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you.